The funny thing about authoring a book called Under the Hood, Therapy Twins, How We Hotwired Our Brain, Calm the Fuck Down, and Let That Shit Go, is, <laughs> well, this is my conversation with Joan and Jane Landino. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guests today are Joan and Jane Landino. They are the authors of Under the Hood, which has a much longer title that we'll get to in a minute, but it, it is available for free on Amazon Kindle right now. They're psychiatric entertainers, authors, storytellers, and uh, retired therapists. And they are twins. They are known as the Therapy Twins. So please welcome Joan and Jane Landino to the show. Hello. We're so excited to be here. And I don't even know, I barely can say the subtitle of our book now because we've republished it and Joan will get to that later. Oh, but I want to just say now that we are retired and we, the book was for people to know that your therapist also suffered from mental illness sometimes. Yeah, not all of us, but m m well, we do. <laughs> and what we wanted to tell people, we did it while we were working as well, is it's great for actors, actresses, football players, anyone who's a billionaire. They have this unbelievable trampoline to fall upon. But most of us, it's while, it, you know, as soon as we say it, we might feel judged. So the rest of the book is how we hotwired our brain, calmed the fuck down and let that shit go, which was what everyone came to us for. That's perfect. Uh -huh. That's that's perfect, Joan, because the, the, the fact is that if there's one thing that I would like to accomplish, it would be to destigmatize de mental health challenges. And I've said it before, you know, you stub your toe and you say, oh, fuck, I just... I just stubbed my toe. That hurts. And that's okay. You know, people may laugh at you for overreacting to stubbing your toe, but you say, I'm feeling a little bit, you know, down and then it creates a mood around it, uh -huh. you know, and uh -huh. even in the wake, even in the wake of a pandemic that had everybody on edge one way or another, it, it hasn't quite broken the stigma. So tell me, tell me a little bit about what made you, first of all, tell me a little bit about the message that your therapists are struggling to, because I think that's really interesting uh, to me. She's trying to explain no, the no. question to me. She's the older no. twin. Sometimes I don't get it. And she looked at me and said, oh, that's you, Joan. And I'm thinking, well, I have no idea what her well, just Well, because Joan just <laughs> said that your therapist might have mental illness too. And so, yes. You know, if statistically there's a certain percentage of people, let's say with de combined depression and anxiety, and don't quote me, but I think the percentage in the population is somewhere between, around 10%, say. I think it's higher than that for okay. combined, both of those. And let's say people who stub their toe is 10%. Mm. It's probably way higher. You know, it, <laughs> right? But when you share 
you know, oh, you know, and I'm not saying share with your patients. The when, when you should during therapy share or could share with your clients your own experience is if it's not affecting you at that moment that you're giving it because you're going to give a non-bias. You know, when I think back on when I suffered or I had a major depressive episode, you know, it's not, it is still frowned upon, but you can share that, you know, oh, I took Lexapro and Mm -hmm. I had this side effect and this is how I remedied it. Or, or a patient can say, well, what if you were in this situation? What if you were in this situation? And you know, the most you could do is, you know, if I was in that situation, I might blah, blah, blah. Because it's always a nightmare when a, yes. a patient comes back <laughs> and says, hey, doc, and we're nurse practitioners, but whoever they say it to, I took your advice. Oh, we get all nervous. Well, as a therapist, you're like, <laughs> oh, God, I don't think I gave advice, but everybody hears what they want to hear. And so what we're saying is if the general population has a certain percentage of people that suffer from depression, anxiety, PTSD, bipolar disorder, etc., the general population of people who do therapy are not exempt from these statistics, even though they like to appear so. Right, right. Okay. I remember a friend of mine who'd always kind of been troubled went into uh, psychology as a profession. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking about that with, with my parents or my family and someone saying, well, you know, people who go, who go into it professionally tend to have struggled with it themselves. I'm going to say absolutely. And, absolutely. As well as it could have been a family member. Yeah. Um, it could have been you're trying to seek out information about, you know, your pattern in relationships. Maybe you always pick someone who suffers from addiction and you might want to learn more right. about that. And, you know, and it is always about yourself, though, whether Unfortunately. it's yourself or your <laughs> relationships, etc. Yes. Yeah. And the, and the second half of that observation was, and they haven't always worked it out yet. Oh, of so, course. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was very much to your point Sorry. that don't look to the therapist as being the catch-all and the, and the solution for everything. You know, look at them as first a fellow traveler or they wouldn't yes. have been in that in that business to begin with. Exactly. Right. And, um, and because of all of that, that they're longing to figure things out and make things better, a lot of times the therapist can learn very, very well the technique to get you on your path. That doesn't mean that they don't go home, you know, either they're lonely, get on the wrong path you know, again. Oh, crying, why won't anyone date me? Or, you know, <laughs> why am I feeling so suicidal? And you know, things like that. So, you know, it's just like if you can go to the best neurosurgeon for your brain tumor, but are you going to expect that that neurosurgeon is that meticulous and methodical in areas of life where that those qualities are warranted? They might not be. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that people don't realize is, for example, let's take something very physical as we know it is dementia. It is very common for the spouse or the children that live very close by and see this person a lot. It's harder for them to spot it because once we spot something in our lives that's stressful, the human brain is so wonderful. There's this thing called denial. So who you want to ask is the kid that lives halfway across the country that's coming over for the holidays and 
then they say, you know, did you notice dad can't play Liverpool Rummy, a game that we've all been playing at least since we were kids? Why, when did dad start having a problem playing this, this game? He doesn't have these skills anymore. Oh, I don't know. You know, because no one's paying attention or no one wants to pay attention. It's too stressful. Mm -hmm. Same with mental illness. It doesn't, it's not unusual for a spouse to have missed part of a manic episode or the brewing, say, of a major depression. It's not uncommon for loved ones to miss. So I wanted, suicide. To, I wanted to point that out so mm -hmm. people don't all feel so, so horribly about that. I mean, as professionals, you know, I knew to teach my child about depression because I had it and I knew that DNA is a funny thing and it could be passed on. And so I educated him to the signs and symptoms because he may not have observed his mother being majorly depressed when, when you have a child, it's pretty funny whether you're physically ill or emotionally ill, you still have to get up and take care of that child, pick them up from school right. and bring them to their after school, etc. So, you know, a child might not see mommy in bed for 24 hours, but they might feel like being in bed for 24 hours and that's a symptom they should know about. Yeah. Well, first of all, to your mention of, of the, the best neurosurgeon in the world, I want the second best neurosurgeon <laughs> because I think they still have something to prove. I agree at that, with you. At that point. I agree. That's <laughs> I want the, I want the one who's who hasn't done their best work yet, Absolutely. and they're just they're just ready. They're like, oh, this one's gonna, this is it. You don't think I can save this one? Yeah, I'm, I'm saving this one. Yeah. And not only that, he's gonna be he's gonna be able to do his taxes. He's gonna be smarter than he was before. <laughs> I'll show you. Oh, six million I want dollar a man surgeon who saves my life out of spite. I think that's probably the there you uh, go. the best. But you were saying about function and how a parent has to function. That's another part of the stigma, which is that stubbing your toe doesn't render you generally ineffectual as a worker or as a parent or whatever it might be. Whereas mental health threatens the efficacy of the of the person who's who's suffering. So how do you approach that? You mean with myself or with patients? <laughs> Well, you well either either way, I, what what you've been able to do with others or what you learned in yourself. I'd like to start with what I learned in myself because a lot of times, and and this is good. I can't. I just can't think of an exact example with a former patient, but if I do, I'll bring it up. But let's just take okay. me. I was a patient. Um, I did therapy for three years. Uh, weekly therapy, and all I recall is complaining a lot. But obviously, <laughs> something got done because it prompted me to go on for higher education, et cetera. But like I said, I, so I suffer from depression and anxiety as a child. No one knew what that was. You just end up coping. You get full a body full of hives and the doctor says, tell her, you know, give her some Benadryl and let's move on. And when things don't get treated, it's going to go severe. So I had this major depressive episode when my son was younger. He was very young. So looking back, I'm cleaning out a closet and I come up across all these photos that I never put in albums. Because one of the things about depression that's so hard to treat is, is that motivation to do things, to get up. And I mean, to get right. things done that when you are not depressed is just kind of secondhand, like taking a full shower. 
you know, things like that. So anyway, I was looking at yeah. all these photos and I was in my mid to late thirties and I looked very nice. I, I looked good, right? Looking back, <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah. you should have really enjoyed how nice looking you were in your thirties. But my son walked by and I went, Adam, he's like, what? I said, I am so sorry. And he said, what? And I handed him a stack of photos. It was, I overtook the mommy and child and at different ages. And I said, did I always look like that? And he said something diplomatic, like, well, you know, what do you mean? No, you, you were, you were okay. You're okay. He told me I was the good enough mother. I got that compliment. I was the good right, enough mother. Right. Okay. But one of the photos that I had framed in the, our apartment for years, I said one day, you know, it's my favorite photo. And he said, really? I hate it. And I went, oh, why? He said, look at your eyes. So here's this, uh, like three-year-old I'm holding him and he is gazing at me in adoration and my eyes are pointed in the opposite direction of my child to the floor as if I'm saying, my <laughs> God, I didn't want this child. And it's so the, that type of thing does not get picked up, unfortunately. And when you think about the amount of medication trials that someone who suffers from a depression might go through six, seven medication trials, each has to be a certain number of weeks, etc. I mean, the, the cost of the emotional neglect or trauma placed on the people around us is just, it's so uncalled for and it's so damaging that we need so much more help. We are in the infantile stages of helping with mental health. Yeah. Here I was, the professional, getting the help, getting the med trials, working a good job, taking care of my child very well, and I get to look back on photos that I don't want to see them anymore because now I'm smiling and I just want to make new ones. You just want to superimpose new, yeah. new happy emotions over those old ones. But I guess confronting the old ones is good yes. in the sense that you're, you're bringing closure to you know, your son might be looking at a picture and for all these years thinking how miserable his mother was <laughs> and, you know, he can, you know, but that's a whole other level is the actual emotional weight of parenthood. And when we're young parents, you know, if I had it to do over again, the, the very early years of my older kids, you know, I would have had a whole different worldview. Right. Because I, I was not, I was immature and I had a, I kind of conceded a worldview almost to, to what I, what I'd been brought up to, to believe and the things that were important and, and it was stressful for them. You know, it was, and I, and I wish that I could, you know, go back and, and lighten that up, you know, but the knowledge that, that I feel that way is, is good for them at least to know, you know, yeah. that, that kind of progression that they've seen in me, you know, is probably good, is probably helpful. And then, you know, I, I think that, well, I'm curious about also psychiatry from your point of view, where you sit and you look at psychiatry and it seems to be so much about the medication. It's almost like psychiatry is about drugs and psychology is about, <laughs> is about therapy. Yeah. 
you know, about about talking about it yeah, or feeling it. It is so skewed and, and within states as well, who does the therapy and who does meds? We actually were flagged and audited because we were doing both therapy and meds. Mm -hmm. and, and that is the best level of care, I guess. But if we move back to when we started in psychiatry, we were kind of lied to. We it was brought up with wonderful psychiatrists that I believe knew this, what we just learned. And they kept exploring trauma, trauma, trauma. And I was wondering, why isn't anyone exploring addiction or, um, you know, the chemical imbalance of why somebody's a schizophrenic or why are they having religious delusions? It was all trauma. So more recently being retired, there it's been all over the internet that in the 50s, the DSM, that diagnostic book where we all diagnose people. It said that in the 50s, the diagnoses, including schizophrenia, was human reaction to trauma, what you've seen, what you've gone through. Now, you guys are talking about the parents. Thank God I've never had one. But in nature, a, a parent or a child, don't. Yeah, a child. <laughs> I would have been horrific. Apparently, she never had a parent. Yeah. I felt like that. Right. <laughs> But in nature, when an animal is attacked by a herd, I mean, there's a herd, and when an animal, one of the herds, gets attacked by the lion or the tiger or whatever, if that animal doesn't die, that herd takes that animal and allows for regression. They allow that animal to heal and get back in to make that godforsaken run again, and it's you might be your turn again. But here in society today, what we do is we shun people. We make them feel ashamed. We separate individuals. If they can't live up to what we're living up to, what's wrong with them? I used to be able to do that. We, we make fun of them. So I think we have to allow for regression within the community, within the family. Otherwise, no one's going to get better. You can't just keep, because the body, is, I should have mentioned this. Your body will always remember. Your mind won't, but your body will right. come out with a panic attack all right. of a sudden. At Pier 1 Imports, when Pier 1 Imports is a wonderful store and it wasn't even crowded. But I was a nurse, had my first panic attack there, and then I just started laughing because all that trauma from birth <laughs> to whenever, I, I could handle that. Why couldn't I handle that? So that's unfortunate. Speaking of panic attacks... Let's talk for a minute about spinning out this dichotomy between what we intellectually, even children, intellectually know to be irrational or overly dramatic, and then spinning out into a full-blown attack versus being able to cope. Are there, are there things that we're missing both as adults and as, as parents too you know, yeah. you know, thank God for, you know, everyone says there's no manual for parenting. There are a lot of books. There's a lot of information, but they tend to be kind of opinions associated with the times. Like now we know better. You don't hit a child. You do time out. Back when we were young, wherever spare the rod, spoil the child came about. <laughs> We, I don't know. Some people say Dr. Spock, but a lot of people say he, poor Dr. Spock was misquoted. Who Not knows? from Star Trek. Another. Yeah. I think it was the, the rod lobby. It was the people who sell rod. The rod industry just wanted to sell more rods. And so they that was their campaign. Yeah. Spare the rod, spoil the child. And they're like, now we can get... 
Sales went up 400%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there lies the curtain rod. Hello. That's wonderful. Our mother worked at a curtain rod factory. She did. did. You know what? She worked at the curtain. Shame on her. She worked at a curtain rod factory back in the day when this particular factory, and now it's mostly McDonald's, I think, but where they had a deal with a prison where they would hire (laughs) ex-cons. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you can imagine how our father felt when he had to be home with the three kids because we have another sister and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, it's not always what happens to the child. It ha- it's how do the parents or the community, if I could stretch it, deals with how, what happens to the child or to the children in the community. And it's just, we have a long history of all the physical, <clears throat> physical things, whether it's a natural disaster to a serial killer that likes to kill, you know, children, for example. John Wayne Gacy, I all think, right, the so, young ones. And, Boys, then, and then how outraged everybody is and how we come together and we do these neighborhood watches and uh, all this wonderful stuff. Or we have a physical thing going on. Um, you know, why are these children, at least in Connecticut, why were they getting breasts at a younger age? And, you know... Connecticut was a state that the number one drug at the time, they were giving the number one drug for the children, out of control children, was an antipsychotic called risperidone. It happens to have a side effect that can increase blank and then cause some breasts enlargement. But not for women, because we would all be on those, of course. Instead, it's a lot cheaper to take risperidone than get your breasts (laughs) done, obviously. So the poor guys that were taking it started to get breasts. So anyway, what, what we see when we see an acting out child to an acting out adult, someone who's not behaving themselves and, and acting within the norms of society, first we get frightened as a group, like, oh, no, you know, we then think, how do we deal with this? And unfortunately, it seems that Western medicine, whether it's a physical or an emotional illness, there was a, just this big reaction. And, you know, we were afforded all these medications. The pharmaceutical company said, oh, do this, do this, do this. And for physical and emotional things, here's this pill. We have unfortunately turned into a pill nation, a reactive society. And I want a pill because I'll tell you, I've read some self-help books and they were gruesome. I never, yeah. I'm sorry. Did I say I read some self-help books? Yes. I started to read some I don't believe I've ever finished any of them because the homework was too much. And so, yes, we could all use more coping skills. But if you don't teach people when they're very young, just like another language, when you have bilingual parents and a child can grow up knowing two languages, that's wonderful. The rest of us go and get a language. I think it's junior high school in Connecticut anyway it was growing up. And and then you're so frustrated. You're like, I must be the only human that can't learn a second language. This is terrible. So, you know. Yeah. And then I'll tell you, there is something people can do. There's a certain way to sit on the chair, putting your arms behind the back of just a straight chair, a kitchen chair, and leaning forward. And it actually... They made us do it in school. It literally calmed you down. The bag, it didn't work. It made me tired. You're breathing in the CO2. Well, now you're getting lightheaded and you have to sit down. That wasn't fun. But this other one, did I ever use it when I had a panic attack? Absolutely not. I had a Xanax. Way easier to take that. So I fell for that too. But now 
you know, we got in trouble and I had to get off some meds fast. I had to do my own <laughs> withdrawal. Thank God I had a lot of detox experience. Well, tell me about your credentials and your education and then tell me how you got in trouble. Okay. Well, we're both RNs, registered nurses. Jane got a four-year degree. I got to do a two-year degree and I had to finish my bachelor's degree later. She went for her master's in psychiatric nursing to, at Columbia and who followed her? I did. I followed her later. I first, because I felt very inadequate, I first went and got, this is going to sound weird, a master's in forensic science. That sounds like I didn't feel inadequate. But at the time, it was, you know, right there, you know, the whole thing with O.J. Simpson, you know, they had so many applicants and all. I did it too. I didn't get in at first. I want to tell young people, I didn't finish my bachelor's until age 35, and I did not get into my first master's degree. Uh, I was totally denied the first time. I called, I, I don't know how I did this, I called the head of the department. He had a PhD in chemistry from Yale University, and I said, you know, that's not right. You accepted all these people. I have a really good background, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. My money's just as good. And what a nice man. He said, you're lacking, you know, five classes. And I said, well, which ones are those? He says, well, I'm not supposed to tell you. And I insisted. What a great guy. I took all five of those on my own through correspondence or clepping them. Then I went back. She got me into Columbia to get my master's in what did we get? Psychiatric science nursing. and nursing. Psychiatric. So I'm overeducated and uh, and have ADD. So it's wonderful to hear me speak. Yes. Anyway, the reason we got in trouble was why, Jane? Why did we get in trouble? The first time we got in trouble, I'm sorry, did I say the first? So the first time I got in trouble was with Joan and another partner was we have Masters of Science in Nursing, Psychiatric Special is the specialty. And, and then in the, in the state of Connecticut, in order to be a prescriber and a therapist, or either one, you have to be board certified, which means there was this test you took. You had to Gruesome. pass it. Four-hour test. Oh, boy. And, and, yeah. and stuff like that. In the beginning, you had to have a collaborative relationship with a physician. Some states is you are still under the physician. Connecticut got autonomy, I don't know when, somewhere in 2000. Okay. But again, you know, just like you wanted to, I want to jump back to that. You want to get the second best neurosurgeon. You know, there's this famous thing <laughs> called an ego in a lot of professions, yes. right? Yes. And if you are a seasoned practitioner and you don't continue to get some type of collaborative supervisory or just advice, advice or throwing things off your colleagues in the area, then you're going to probably not be the best you can be. But anyway, what we were doing, which was common in the practice of medicine in general, all areas, is prescribed for a colleague. Uh -huh. Okay. And okay. I mean, my, my former mentor prescribed for me and I prescribed, um, occasionally for him as well, the secretary. And it, this is something that is too common and we did get in trouble. And in hindsight, you should you never, you should probably not. And the reason is you are too close and think about what we talked about with a loved one that's got dementia. It's the people that are too close, and I don't mean in a, ne in a negative manner, mm -hmm. that they're right. close, they're missing something. Just like I used to miss my ex-boyfriend's relapses 
people would say to me, you know he relapsed, and I would defend him. No, he didn't. But yeah, he did. But yeah, I worked in detox for years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I was too right. yeah, but we Yes. We're, none of us are immune to seeing what we want to see. In, right, exactly. You know, and, and, and look, I, I wor I've worked in you know, publicity for a long time and advertising, and I know what it feels like to want to feel good about the product or the client, you know, and sometimes mm -hmm. you're just so hopeful you give them every opportunity to shine and you just hope they're, you're just rooting for them. Right. And so in a way yes. you don't, you're, you forgo, you, you know, you, you let, you let some things slide yes. and that's, that's probably. So in this case, you prescribed for a colleague and technically how he, you, he wasn't a patient, right? That was the idea. Well, was that, here's the, yeah. in the olden days when it was more acceptable to, Prescribe for a colleague, you had to have a chart, absolutely, and you had to document in your chart, but you usually, if the colleague was in the same department as you, like working in the same vicinity, that chart was put, placed somewhere else where they can't get the urge to go look at it. I mean, people could have every right to see their chart, but there's usually a process, and then, mm -hmm. and, and then... <clears throat> It's almost, it's, it's a little frowned upon, but they do have a right to their records. So anyway, and we had a third colleague and, and that was my ex-husband and that's the downfall. Cause I was, I, uh, Jane prescribed for my ex-husband, but my ex-husband prescribed for both of us, which he, on his behalf, we asked him because we thought it was okay. Because pharmacists used to say, as long as you have a DEA number, Joan, you can prescribe for yourself as well. And I thought, wonderful. How wonderful is that? as long as it wasn't a controlled mm -hmm. substance. But the only reason, because it's never even, so far in Connecticut, no one's gotten in trouble for it but us, <laughs> that I know of, because we had a lot of colleagues that said, oh my God, are you kidding me? I better stop. You know, some were prescribing for their mm -hmm. husbands and wives. It was like a pharmaceutical orgy. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And going on. What, uh, why we got in trouble was a human being complained about one of us, which was me. And it was the mother of one of my adult clients and she felt her daughter was a substance abuser and she felt that I was giving her uppers and downers and at the time I would say to human beings now I mean she was really in her 30s I can't say this I would really like parentless clients <laughs> because you know they're persistent the Department of Public Health told me the first time that complaint came in they threw it out because as far as they were concerned, I didn't do anything wrong. But the complaint, the same complaint came in twice by the same person. And what happened was I was, I was prescribing two controlled substances to this person. I was prescribing uh -huh. her a low-dose, long-acting Adderall, which is for attention deficit disorder. She was a school teacher trying to get work. And I prescribed her a, like a baby dose once of a 30-day supply of 0.5 Ativan, which is really a nice low dose, which, and a vitamin. I prescribed her all three. So what they said to me was, the reason I was getting in trouble was I prescribed a, a benzodiazepine. That's the one in this country that's now the, the devil. A benzodiazepine with a controlled substance. So I said to the lawyer... This sounds like bullshit because both are controlled substances. I don't like the lingo. Is that illegal? Because every colleague I know is also doing that. 
And what he said all was, Joan, in order for me to take all three of you, you told me you wouldn't throw anyone else under the bus. I said, oh. Okay, so what I heard from that was, that's a plea deal. Let me take it instead of fight it. So when they told me the controlled substance that is the devil in the, the country that I live in, I could still prescribe that one because there is a physical withdrawal of that. You can't cut people off of that one. You just can't. Uh -huh. The other one is a higher a lower schedule, which means it's more dangerous, which it's not, according to, according to our... our DEA, but it's not, is Adderall. So they said to me, if I want to continue prescribing the Adderalls of the world, I would have to go through supervision and my charts would have to have every I dotted and every T crossed. And I said, thank you so much. I'd like to sign that, you know. Well, they said, would you sign the paper? I said, will you leave my office? Because I was crying. They were in my face screaming at me. Yeah. And I said, I'll sign it if you leave. And they said, okay. So I never prescribed Adderall from that day on, which is fine. Because if you get pregnant, Adderall stops that day. There's no, there's no physical withdrawal where you could die. You'll feel different. Right. So that was my downfall. But I took the plea deal and then I was fine after that. James got worse, unfortunately. So that first time we got in trouble, that included myself and the other colleague that prescribed for colleagues, let's say, there was no fine. Yeah. Uh, and we had to take two classes. Right. And one was charting on people with controlled substances. And the other one was something very similar about addiction, addiction and stuff like that. Now, so during all this time is the opiate crisis in the United States was getting very like horrible. I mean, people right. are dying. And and so this reactive nation of ours mm -hmm. started because most people that died from the opiates, which we now know it's a stronger opiate called fentanyl that came from China. And it's something like some of the cotton molecules. It's now being made here, though, and it's, it's much stronger. It's being made here. It's even stronger. I mean, we've heard, was it 65,000 times more strong? I mean, it's an incredible... So let's call it the old lingo was something like 500 more times. It was potent. either 100 or 1,000. I can't remember. So let's say around 500 more times. Well, now the new molecules that are either in the country or entering the country are, it doesn't matter if you drank, you know, an eighth of vodka and you took a whole bottle of Xanax. You, this fentanyl is going to kill you. I guess yeah. the, the point is if you threw a, a, a bag of it, it down on the floor and the dust of the powder starts coming out into the air, people go running because if they breathe it in, the small, small amount is deadly. So it makes sense that these, 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 so they, they're coming down, they're on, coming down on prescribers to try to get these other controlled substances that were found in these deceased individuals, mainly stimulants and benzodiazepines, which are prescribed by psych, mostly, sometimes primary care. So they want to get you to de decrease your prescribing practice. But what they're doing is they're getting people, they're fining you, you're, they're putting you through probation. If they don't like how you go through probation, they ask you to surrender your license or they're going to go after you even further. Instead of recognizing that this is a public health disaster, 
And what seems yeah. to be happening is when the prescribers aren't prescribing in a harm reduction manner or being allowed to, and they're cutting people with the threat. So what I did, I don't even know how this is okay to do, is I get in trouble for the two controlled substances and again, the, and the again, lingo is yeah. you prescribed, for, for example, a benzodiazepine with a controlled substance when in, in medicine, we, those are both controlled substances. So the lingo is different and the lingo is now a DEA lingo. So what we're doing to prescribers and you know what? I was not up on the curve of decreasing the benzodiazepines and other controlled substances as much as I believe I should have. Right. Because I simply disagree with, I do disagree with it because what my patients were telling me is you decrease my medicine and I'm, cause I'm doing great. You decrease my medicine. Oh my God, I'm going to relapse on heroin. Oh my God, I'm going to relapse on alcohol. So what we're doing in psychiatry is going after the prescriber and who may or may not need some education and mentorship. I'm all about that because I totally right. agree with all of that. But instead of getting rid of a prescriber and now all these patients are going to jump on someone else's DEA yeah. as a prescriber and one prescriber in particular, a lot of my clients went to this particular prescriber who, because of this crisis, cut everybody in half, whatever they were on. And this is feedback I got through these clients, cut everyone in half. But I know through the grapevine, a couple other people not only got the meds I was giving them, but they increased them back to the old doses. So mm -hmm. the people that are getting in trouble, that's a small percentage. And it's too bad how the state of Connecticut is dictating that. It's very punitive. So the patients are suffering more. And I already had um, one client who was not under my care anymore and he was in his late 30s got hospitalized because I was being told I couldn't prescribe for him anymore and he had and the the hospital is saying why can't you take him back I said I'm on probation my prescribing practices are being looked at I have a rising APRN advanced practice nurse and they're dictating the way I practice. And he went to the addiction specialists and died three months later of an overdose. Yeah. 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 And, and are, we, are we getting so wrapped up in the pharmaceutical solutions that like you, like you said, Joan, you know, I, I would just, I wouldn't try to put my hands behind my back. I would just take a Xanax, mm -hmm. you know, are we getting so wrapped up in that that we're missing the holistic treatment that that everybody kind of needs. Yes, I yes. I, I agree that with that for myself too. It was, you know, how they say sometimes when something bad happens, something great comes out of it. Well, I got off Western medicine and I was able to get on marijuana. And you know, unfortunately, we grew up with just say no to drugs. Then we became nurses. You'd lose your license. So unfortunately, my body has a lot of catching up to do. whoever it is, Cheech or Chong or Willie Nelson. They look <laughs> great. They look fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, I'm catching up because certain things that I read about, like you don't have to, the, the bladder muscles, anybody who gets older realizes there's that urgency. Then you go pee and it's like, huh, that doesn't seem very urgent. But with marijuana, the bladder, bladder, the bladder <laughs> spasms start to go away and now I'm like a teenager where I can hold it throughout like a long time 
And our father was, we were talking about dementia. Everyone on our father's side had Alzheimer's if they lived long enough. That's frightening. So I kept yeah. doing research and research. And there is this one thing. It's like the body. It is so wonderful. It talked about how THC inhibits the amyloid plaque, which builds up in Alzheimer's. And you, you know, you can just say, I can't get enough of that medicine. That is wonderful. So with PTSD, a lot of times you have, you can't remember things, you know, you start stuttering. I did, you know, you have all this, the body kept the score. You didn't go get help. You're turning kind of different, Joan. I was reactive. I screamed all the time. I lost all relationships. Nobody liked me. Her son called me Matilda. And I said, oh, after the French doll? And he said, no, after that fairy godmother in the horror flick we saw last night who killed the children. And I said, I am not that bad, I said to her son. And he was like, yeah, you are. So then when I got better, he said something like, who are you and what, what have you done with my aunt? And of course, I just said, fuck you. But, you know, he, <laughs> people started to notice that, you know, I was totally different on something my body needed. And with the mushrooms yeah. coming out and all this stuff coming out in psychiatry, I think it's wonderful. Acupuncture, St. John's, I don't know, whatever. There's a lot. Jane has a lot. Your well, diet can help you. Change your diet. Yeah. What's a good place to start with mental health? I think the best place to start is right in the home with our kids as little as they are. And of course, when a child, you know, we, we know that a three-year-old doesn't understand, for example, depression or death the way a 12-year-old might understand right. it. So we start, you start when they're young in home and in the school system, in my opinion, you treat tears just like you would treat a Band-Aid on a, a cup where you want to validate first, but then don't overly react and overly, I mean, sometimes we will overly coddle, you know, I'm the mother of a son and I knew that. And she's in, been accused of this. <laughs> and in America, I know, I knew that if, let's say every kid, you know, it's so much fun when you're, I, I only have one child. And so I, I knew that this was so much fun when people would judge that a child goes in the ER and depending on the injury, the, one of the first things you're going to think of is did the parents do something or the caretaker, right, right? Right. So that's always being evaluated in a pediatric population or an infant. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is, is when they start running away from you, like when they're in their twos or even a year and a half and they really are mobile and they want to go is the funny thing. You could be a foot away from your child and they tripped on the stone right in front of them. And, and you might've caught them on the way down. You might not have caught them. So with that, you're like, Oh, sweetie, are you okay? And, and then maybe the parent might say, Oh, next time I, next time I'm not going to walk by Mr. Big stone over here, you know, something's right. right. But with, with, with temper tantrums, which is the child's worst thing, because we all know the worst physical thing, that's a 911 call. Everyone knows that. But with the worst yeah. emotional thing for a child, which are temper tantrums, I mean, we've lived long enough where those are handled very, very differently, and they've been handled differently with different generations. I used to go grocery shopping once a month. I was a very busy, stressed out single mother working full time, and we would get the the most heaping grocery carriage ever. And Adam chose that time 
right before I hit the register to be screaming his head off at what I do not recall. Probably he wanted those avocados that I saw the price and I put them back or something. And so what I did was I picked him up and left the carriage. Well, this is after I chuckled first because out of anxiety, I chuckled like this is absurd. My carriage is full. And an elderly lady, uh, God bless her, said, that's not funny, you know. And and I knew it, but my first reaction was to (laughs) laugh. Yes. And so I picked him up and I whispered in his Mm. ear, sweetie, we're going to have to leave the store now. We have to go to the car because you're clearly very upset and mommy wants to know why or something to that nature. Yeah, yeah. But when we were younger, a temper tantrum on a kid, we grew up in the, uh, born in 1960, a temper tantrum was just ignore them. Mm. Or, you know what I mean? Walk away and, oh, they'll stop. Oh my goodness. And that's, and we used to break things too. And, and today what I noticed in my office is people would tell me, oh, I took the door off to their bedroom. I went, oh, wow, that's a little bit much. And yeah. I'll also tell you what people carry throughout, like what, what brings you here. Basically, the word disappointed is apparently a harsh, harsh word. People will come in in their 40s and 50s. The parent might have been dead. They're still trying to get the approval because of that yeah. word, that word, I'm disappointed in you. That, that has a, a flip side to it, which is that when I was a kid, we wanted so much to please our father. And, 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 you know, he wasn't, he didn't have some kind of outrageous expectations or any kind of severe reactions. He was, he was pretty, you know, uh, even tempered, but had a very booming voice if, if he did use it. Mm -hmm. But the, the notion that he would be disappointed was the worst thing you could, you could feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and on the face of it, it seems rather innocuous, right? It's not, you're not going to do this thing. You can't leave. You're punished. You're, it's not even a punishment. It's just a, it's just a, an observation, you know, you know, do I have to do this? And my father would say, you don't have to do it. I would be very disappointed if you, if you didn't do it. And, the, and then you would be like, you know, crestfallen yeah. from that. But the flip side of that is then you grow up with this unfinished kind of uh, business of being of of having a disappointed parent and no way to really resolve it or or do anything if if that's how it's how it's left you know but i i think i think that uh, the 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 thing that i wanted to leave on is humor and the role that it plays in uh in healthy mindsets Oh, well, now Harvard is actually doing studies over it. But humor, um, laughing itself gives you a lot of physiological benefits, including boosting your immune system and anti-aging. I mean, that's serious as you, you're getting older. It, it, what it does emotionally, it, it disarms people. Then they tell you things. Back in the 80s, I was an RN, and one of the female patients, inpatient for three, the three years that I had worked initially there. She was there for all three years and she was in a wheelchair. And during us laughing on the evening shift, she told me the only orgasm she ever had was with her father. And that is why she attempted suicide. 
So I want to say is I probably shouldn't be making everyone laugh in an inpatient setting because that's like flooding. That's not good. You know, you don't want that right, to come out. Right. You know, I was, I, you know, I can just hope that, well, but now what I, what happened was we had a secretary at some point and she would knock on the door and say, Hey, there's too much laughter going on in here. <laughs> but you know, if you can make fun of yourself, it, it actually brings you to a point where now your ego is being moved off to the side and you are actually able to hear coping skills, hear maybe that you were more controlling or this person was... I used myself all the time. And I, I, I would even say how I was down... The girl was calling herself pathetic because she didn't have any coping skills with her boyfriend and she kind of hugged him and wouldn't let him leave. And I said, well, really, did you ever get to the point where you were down at his ankles and he was so strong you were dragged to the door? She said, oh, please, Joan, I'm not that pathetic. Well, I was, but it made us laugh so much that you then end up hearing these other things that they never told you before in all the years you had seen them. So laughter for me is how we grew up. It's how we handled stress and it's just been wonderful for me. Yeah. You know, for me, I was the one that it took my son. He was a young, um, maybe he was 12 or 13. I don't know. And he said, you know, mom, you can't take a joke. So I did that thing where I will show him I can take a joke because I was the calm twin. Joan was the funny twin. So... I was stubborn. I didn't really do it because it was too hard because I just felt I needed to be heard. And I'd like to tell the audience, if you go backwards and try to make your parents tell you that they didn't mean to do what they, you perceived them doing to you, God bless you if it works. It did not work <laughs> yeah. with my family. It did not. My mother, the, the day she died, there was no way she was going to say anything but here she goes again. <laughs> My father called me the lecturer, so I couldn't take a joke. Well, it took me spending a lot more time with Joan, who's the natural-born comedian, and in, in my own bedroom, when my day didn't go as well as hers, I thought, maybe I should look at this with a sense of frickin' humor. And what looking at it through humor did for me allowed me to change my perception on ha what happened to me, which is really, if nothing changes, nothing changes, which was uh -huh. the only way I actually was able to start my real healing process. Because, you know, on my mother's deathbed, you know, for me, for the two of us to say, I thought you didn't like me. No, no, no. I thought you didn't like me. Really? Is that what, what you want to spend the time doing when your mother is almost 88 years old and she's dying of actual peaceful, beautiful death? Is that really what you want to do? I would rather be belly laughing. I would. And, and saying yeah. you're the best mother ever is what I'd rather yeah. have said, even if she wasn't, which now I look back and say, she, boy, she went above and beyond her own experience. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we should keep that in mind, yes. perspective, that perspective is going to change. I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, we hear that as young, as kids, I remember my, my mother saying, you know, you know, you're going to look back on this moment with, with a different perspective, basically. And thinking about some of my father's kind of irreverence and then 
recognizing, oh yeah, I get it now. Now that I'm the age he was when that happened, I totally get why he thought it wasn't a big deal. You know, it's, it's, it's all, it's all what, like if I were going to write a book, I, you know, about this subject, I would call it something like, you know, it's no big deal, Uh you know, Uh (laughs) or fuck it, basically, (laughs) fuck it, you know, um, but, but, but I love the title, I love the subtitle of, of your book as well. And I think, I think that, uh, well, in closing, uh, you know, you kind of already gave, you, you gave a nice speech on, on comedy, but maybe take us out with something about drama and and where where the correct place might be for drama in our lives. I'm, I'll tell you because I, I tend to... Um, She's very dramatic. I'm, I can get very dramatic. And you know what? I Then, then the universe She's gave me... She's very serious. The, She's the, serious and dramatic. The, and then the universe gave me... Uh, I have Lyme disease as well that can affect your emotions. And then even I couldn't stand myself when I was symptomatic with Lyme with the other physical things that came with that. I noticed, of course, my family must have, because Joan says, yeah, Jane, that's only when you have Lyme symptoms that I was even more dramatic like yeah. I ran into my bedroom and shut the door because, you yeah. know, those types of arguments that never get resolved, you know, you know, I was right. the one, oh, how could you, how <laughs> could you do that to me? Like, uh-huh. it, you know what I mean? I'm, you know, I had a, a, a client who was, he was so good at AA and he said how every addict thinks they're universally unique and there's like their story. And you know, that hits home for me because I really feel like I was insulting my ancestors and I wasn't, hey, I grew up in a pill nation. I wasn't as active as I should have been. And now, thank God, people are getting in trouble in psychiatry and I'm being facetious. They shouldn't be getting in trouble. They should be being taught. But we are changing because America and maybe the world is upset. Is It's not a pill that solves everything whether it's a physical thing or, you know, you can't have a heart attack and go home and eat McDonald's and, you know, keto, like half your plate is meat and and think you're not going to suffer another heart attack. Mm -hmm. So anyway, with psych as well, I mean, I was There's too much drama, go get help because your your friends and family don't want to hear it and you'll lose them. So I ended up, if you go get help, you can at least vent for a little while to a stranger and then realize, holy shit, I hear myself and yes. it's just a bit much. You know, here's what I like to say. There are people starving. <laughs> You're not. You know, I always watched movies that were devastating. And then I thought, my God, my life is fantastic. Because when we feel sorry for ourselves, that's not growing. You, you know, I don't want to say get your bootstraps and move forward. The people in our lives should be validating and, and don't say, go get help, or take, did you take your pill today? That's very passive aggressive, what people said to me. What you say to somebody that you love is, I would like to sit here with you. And I don't even have to say anything if you don't want. That's the danger, because people don't want to hear. I want to vent. Don't go telling me how to fix my life. I'll, you know, there's the court. Discord. Unless I say, help me, yeah. what, what would you do? Yes, what unless the do? person asks. So what then I would say... You, the only thing you say to that person is you deserve, there's the key, not you need help. 
You deserve more than I can give you. As a family member, that person will go get help. But as soon as you say you need it, it's like, fuck you. So do you. You're, it's a family problem. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Definitely a family. Yeah. Well, when they ask you if you've taken your medication, you just say, you know what I really need is a suppository because I don't give a shit. That's what... That's what I want. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Joan and Jane, for, oh, for coming so on Truth Tastes Funny. Thank you so much, and thanks for making us laugh. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.